Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, reporter at the Automotive News and your host. And I'm Alexa St. John, covering tech and suppliers. Joining us in just a few minutes on the podcast today is Steve Gursky. Uh, Steve is the managing partner at Vecto IQ, uh, board member at Nikola Corp, and the former vice chairman of General Motors. He's going to walk us through the new appeal of special purpose acquisition companies in the transportation technology world. Uh, as many of you know, he just uh, led the successful merger with Nikola. Uh, really exciting stuff. I am happy to have him on the podcast today. But first, Alexa, uh, a lot of busy, a lot of news this week in the automated vehicle realm. Uh, we had the automated vehicle symposium, uh, the annual kind of gathering this year virtual of, of some of the you know, most important people in the industry, in academics, in government to discuss the state of affairs. Uh, I know you tuned into that. What, what, what did you learn? Well, I had some good takeaways. As you said, you know, we had a, a fairly diverse uh, group of panelists this year um, in terms of some representation from US DOT, uh, venture capitalists, uh, others in the industry. Um, I was, I think, most interested in the VC conversation uh, that we listened to on Tuesday. Um, we had some venture capitalists talking about what sort of challenges they're facing um, working with new entrepreneurs uh, throughout COVID-19. And, you know, something I was fascinated by, obviously, as we've all been touched, uh, you know, having to record these podcasts even over Zoom, uh, is the fact that, you know, they're having a harder time establishing trust and communication and, and more meaningful relationships with entrepreneurs purely only over video chat. So uh, that was kind of one point I hadn't thought about before, even though, as I said, uh, we ourselves are experiencing this on a daily basis. Um, but also, you know, another important part to, uh, to that conversation Tuesday um, was just, you know, now that we're at a certain point um, with with um, autonomous vehicles or self-driving technology, you know, obviously delivery bots are, are getting a bit of a spotlight uh, in particular right now. But, you know, some of the, the venture partners, you know, said we're at this point, but we're still needing of a regulatory uh, and very much so infrastructure-based investments to support all of these new things. So, you know, it's great that the technology is on its way, certainly uh, not quite there yet, but the the significant and crucial thing moving forward um, for these for these venture capitalists uh, will be the infrastructure to accompany uh, all of these new and exciting things over the next five ten years. Alexa, you mentioned that uh, you know the technology is close, but in some cases maybe not quite quite ready. And on on the passenger side of things, I felt like that was definitely the case from what we learned at AVS this week. Uh, Really interesting panel on driver monitoring and management with level two systems. And uh, I think it was Brad Sturch from Audi had what I thought was the quote of the conference. And it was essentially that, um, you know, drivers aren't looking for this magic moment where they take their hands off the steering wheel, but they're looking for help and support in, in any number of ways with, with managing their cognitive load while driving right now. Uh, and it's such a contrast from where we were at you know, as, as recently as two years ago. So uh, I thought it was 
you know, important that there was such a focus first and foremost on level two at AVS. Uh, and then, then to kind of hear people say like, it's not about, not about taking your hands off the wheel. It's about, you know, how, how drivers in and driving systems can collaborate together right now. Uh, so, so understanding that there's this, not this magic moment where there's going to be, you know, AVs suddenly whisking people around. I thought that Alexa, there was also like a, you know, an interesting city perspective on that, uh, to some extent from the, uh, Lyft executive who, who spoke in terms of, we're seeing, uh, bikes and scooters kind of be a, you know, key vehicle, key vehicles for getting people around right now. And, you know, how, how is Lyft kind of preparing for a, you know, more realistic, you know, short term. It was really interesting to hear Lyft uh, kind of have this focus on what cities are doing right now. So, you know, much like we've seen this recent uptick in bike and scooter use, um, you know, after the the initial peak of the pandemic, you know, he thinks the response that cities have had to um, those forms of transportation in terms of, you know, integrating more infrastructure and, and preparing for better bike lanes and things like that. Um, he thinks they can have the same response in the future for AVs. Um, in fact, he said, you know, what's happening right now in terms of the overall transportation ecosystem uh, might give us a, a glimpse into the future of AVs. So that means, you know, much like how cities have responded to the need for, say, bike lanes, uh, they could also reallocate space to accommodate, you know, autonomous vehicles. And we're seeing um, with the need for delivery, again, you know, having an AV come up to the curb, uh, get something dropped in and then be able to leave uh, might be a bit more efficient than, you know, a human driver uh, tackling that task uh, might eliminate congestion, uh, things along those lines. But, you know, I heard not only from Lyft, um, but also even a bit from the venture capitalists that, um, you know, a lot of the onus lies on cities to uh, be able to rethink certain spaces or, or reallocate certain spaces or reconfigure certain spaces to adopt a lot of these new technologies. Yeah, along similar lines, I, I felt one of the interesting points was, uh, you know, in reference to the kind of ongoing attempts to pass le- federal legislation that. Uh, paves the way for AV deployments. Uh, you know, on one hand, cities have a lot to think about, and on the other, there's still this question of whether such federal legislation would preempt them from from taking much action uh, if it's going to be a f- you know strong federal approach. Uh, so there's that question kind of hanging out there for cities too that that was addressed at AVS, which I thought was kind of crucial, especially since. Uh, it doesn't seem like we're particularly close to getting any federal legislation. And in fact, uh, someone from the Intelligent uh, Transportation Society of America said that it's it's probably going to be the next Congress. So overall, what I heard was that you know we're not, other than delivery, perhaps we're not particularly close to legislation. We're not close to a magic moment of taking our hands off the wheel. Uh, just kind of like a fundamental rethink of of where autonomy is at. Uh, but uh, segueing now to our our conversation with Steve Gursky, uh, there are tangible things happening in the transportation technology space that uh, have more to do with electrification and hydrogen fuel cells. Uh, Steve is going to tell us about uh, Nikola and where where its plans stand, and and also this trend of 
special purpose acquisition companies in the transportation realm. So uh, without further ado, let's go to our conversation with Steve Gursky. Good afternoon, Steve, and, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Where are you today? Where are you joining us from? Today I'm in Westchester County, New York, which is just outside New York City, and I have been holed up here uh, since March. New York, as you know, has been through some pretty rough times with regard to COVID. Uh, thankfully, we're on the back side of that, so things are better here, but um, certainly we've been, we're still being very mindful of the situation. Sure. New Rochelle there was a, uh, an early kind of hotspot, so glad to hear that you right. are that you are through and, and certainly you've been busy lately. Um, you know, I, I kind of want to ask you about Vectil IQ and Nicola, and uh, maybe we just kick this off. Take us back three years or so to the formation of Vectil IQ. And I know it's technically two separate companies, so perhaps you can kind of delineate those differences for our listeners and, and tell us more so what, what you had in mind when you first formed this company. Sure. So, as you said, there's really two Vecto IQs. There's Vecto IQ LLC, which is a consulting and small venture investing firm, which I started with a partner, a woman named Mary Chan, who actually ran the Connected Car Group at GM with me uh, back in the day. Um, and that was primarily set up as a consulting firm to help small emerging tech companies figure out how to deal with big companies. And then we had big companies come over and can you help us deal with small companies? And then we did some venture investing along the way. And I'm happy to get into any of those. The first one was, a, for example, was a software company that facilitated over-the-air updates. Uh, they were primarily an Israeli company, actually. They were a 10-year-old company facilitating over-the-air updates of phones, pivoting into cars. The CEO approached me, said, I got a bunch of people, a bunch of VCs on my board. Nobody's actually been inside a company. Can you come on my board? Furthermore, we're a 10-year-old company, grew up around mobile, and we're pivoting into the car. Nobody knows anything about car. Uh, three board meetings later, that company got acquired by Harman. And we knew Harman well. And the, it's not like I called up the CEO of Harman and said, you need to buy this company. But uh, the fact that we were there and had done diligence uh, lended some credibility to the situation. So that grew into advising a bunch of different companies. But as you mentioned, about two and a half years ago, uh, we created what is commonly called a SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Corp. And the view was that the capital needs of this industry were going to increase. Uh, the private markets were not uh, large enough or mature enough to tap this. And that ultimately they'd need to, this industry would need to tap the public markets for things like this. So if you want, I can get into the background of how this actually works. For people who don't know, um, the SEC calls these things blank check companies. You basically create a shell company, you take it public, and the only asset is cash. We raised $230 million in our SPAC, and you have two years to basically take your public shell company and merge it into a private company as almost like a backdoor way for that company to go public. What is the appeal to doing it that way versus a traditional initial public offering? Okay, so what you're doing here is you're effectively merging two companies as opposed to taking one company public. And because of that, because you're doing a merger, the disclosure is different, meaning you can provide in a merger, you can provide forward forecasts of what you expect the company to earn over the next handful of years, whereas an IPO, you can't do that. 
you can diligence the situation a lot deeper versus an IPO. You can raise more money, okay, and you can frankly take existing shareholders out in a larger number in this way versus uh, an IPO. So I think a SPAC is increasingly becoming a viable alternative to IPO. Uh, some things changed in the SPAC market that made them more efficient in a way. It used to be um, you needed a uh, you need you need a it used to be you needed a shareholder vote at the end. The shareholders vote either I want to do this deal or I don't, and if I vote no, I get my money back. Um, so your shareholders are basing you lending basically lending you money for two years and then get a free option on your deal. And what happened in recent years is they separated the votes into, yes, you could do the deal or not, and B, I want my money back or not. So most people, there's no economic consequence to, to limiting me or someone like me from doing a deal. So that almost always goes through. And then it just becomes a question of how many people want their money back and how do you replace that money? I know it's a complicated answer, but that's the, uh, uh, it's basically how it, how it works. I see. So really the only downside sounds like it would be, you know, if, if I'm a, a theoretical investor here, uh, my money is holed up for two years, not doing a whole lot until you come with the proposed merger. So if I don't like that, that sounds like the worst case scenario, but, uh, yeah. And you're getting, uh, you're getting some level of interest. Our cash was invested in treasury. So you some level of treasury interest and you get some piece of a warrant which is the right to buy the shares at a, at a premium, small premium in the future, which has value as well. So you're getting paid to wait. And, you know, listen, it used to be there were hedge funds set up and money managers set up just to park cash and things like this. And now it's increasingly some fundamental investors are saying, hey, this is a team I'd like to back. They have some experience and I get a free option on their deal. And it's certainly to your point, it, it, you know, in automotive, uh, you know, you, you were the uh, trailblazer, it seems like recently, and now you have the likes of Fisker and Velodyne and others saying that they want to, to take the SPAC route. So it certainly seems like this is the start of a, start of a trend. Yeah. And in some cases, SPACs could be more expensive than IPO. It really depends upon the needs of the company. So to, just to put in perspective, Pete, we looked at 70, we signed 75 NDAs, meaning we looked at 75 situations deep. We actually put out six LOIs and got one deal. So to say this is really easy is not that easy. And also to consummate this deal, we actually had to show up with our 230 million and go out and raise another 500 plus million dollars uh, in what they call a pipe, a public investment in private equity. So we actually had to go uh, you know, raise a lot of money to make this deal happen. Uh, we were successful. We, you know, we, we caught a trend and we brought a lot of, you know, we had to convince ourselves of a handful of things with regard to Nicola. Okay. One, we had to convince ourselves that new technology didn't need to be invented here, that the risks really were around engineering, which is time and money. Okay. The second thing we need to do, and, and I think a lot of people need to do because there's a lot more coming in the SPAC world, and particularly in the spaces, is there enough here for these pre-revenue companies to keep investors interested until there is revenue? And that's, we needed to convince ourselves that, you know, it's not just here, you've got a backdoor way to go public, and now we've got to wait two years till revenue shows up. There needs to be uh, events or validation events, so to speak, 
whether it's new customers, new partners, new uh, prototypes, what have you, um, depending on what kind of company you are, uh, whether you're an EV company, whether you're a component company, what have you, uh, that's going to keep investors interested because no one, you know, they've just invested in something that they sat around for two years. They don't want to sit around another two years. So that's the other thing that we need to convince ourselves of uh, to make these kind of things work. And I would argue that's something that every SPAC is going through as they look at something in this space because the space is largely pre-revenue. It is. And it's, you know, it's sometimes hard to, to find that tangible thing to kind of pin all these broad hopes on. So uh, it's interesting to hear you say that that's kind of a, you know, a significant portion of your, of your process is, is finding something that's tangible in the near term. And, and remember our, our sweet spot was transportation. SPACs in many cases uh, uh, communicate where, they want to invest in, what vertical they want to invest in. Ours was transportation. It's not always the case. There's many generalists, but ours was transportation. We basically said anything that moves is in our wheelhouse. And that's where we tap our network of people. We brought an army of people into Diligence Nicola. Okay, frankly, a bunch of XGM people, to be candid, and uh, who had their own perspectives. But that's the, and if we looked at a, a more traditional powertrain company, we would bring a different army of people in. So we, we tap a network, uh, depending on what type of investment, where it is, what part of the world, et cetera. Um, and having been in this industry for 30 years, we have a network that's uh, pretty deep in many cases. Steve, you mentioned that you kind of looked at 75 different companies, and uh, I know you can't discuss that at all because you have signed NDAs with them, but, but generally speaking, you know, I'm sure you've got amazing stories to tell about that, but what, what was it that you know, separates uh, those six from the 75, and you know, what is that funnel like as you kind of narrow down on, on the, the company that you ultimately want to marry? So we looked at um, companies in different buckets. It wasn't just emerging tech companies uh, because we have a fuse. You know, we have two years. We need to get a deal done. So we have to broaden it a little bit. So we looked at old economy. We looked at new economy. We looked at companies that were transitioning where our team, we thought our team could help them transition. Um, and we looked at deals that didn't work for, for other reasons, busted deals. Uh, that didn't work for other reasons. And some of them, obviously, we signed six LOIs, five faded away, okay? And they faded away because their earnings weren't what we thought they would be upon deeper diligence. They faded away because we had valuation uh, differences. We faded away because at the end of the day, they just weren't ready to be public um, for whatever reason. So there are a number of reasons why these things fade away. Um, and then we landed on Nicola and listen, we thought this was a big idea and okay. that was, uh, you know, where is, what's the potential, not only where is the company now, but where can it go? And we looked at some big ideas also that just weren't ready yet, either weren't ready technically or weren't ready operationally, what have you. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, it really seems like when we talk about this time frame from 2017, when you started this to, to this spring when you uh, announced your intentions to, to merge with uh, Nicola, uh, so much had changed in this mobility slash transportation technology industry. I wondered how, if any of those kind of shifting 
ideas about where this was going kind of also played into to how this shook out for you? Certainly the need for capital in this area started to increase over the, over the journey. But we did talk to some companies early on that thought they could go public. And they said, we don't need a SPAC for whatever reason. Uh, we're going to go public on our own. And what they're learning in hindsight is a SPAC is like a sponsored IPO in a way with validation behind it. So it doesn't mean it's guaranteed to work, but um, you know, other people have done work on it. So some of the companies we actually talked to in our process who told us, yeah, we'd rather do go public on our own, or we think we can raise this capital privately, um, are now actually rumored to be going the SPAC route, which is yes. sort of ironic. But certainly things have changed uh, and things are going to continue to change. Uh, and when you look at the sort of the buckets of sort of emerging tech, you know, there's connected cars, there's mobility as a service, there's electric, there's autonomous. Those are sort of all evolving at different rates and have different needs for capital. So on the connected cars, I think virtually every car is going to have an embedded modem going forward. I think that investment's already been made. I think cars are generating data. And now the question is, what do you do with it? And how much capital does that require? And what do you and what can you get out of it? I mean, when we first put uh, 4G LTE in every GM car, we thought the oh, wow use case was going to be uh, you listen to a book on tape, push a button, and it goes into your library. We had no idea at the time the power of this, the power of all the sensors on the car, predicting vehicle failure, predicting component failure, what's going on in the environment around you. So there are a lot of business models being generated around that. On the electrification front, I think that in, those investments are going in now. The OEMs are putting in a lot of investments in. You've got a lot of choice. The costs are coming down. Certainly, um, the, the, the costs of batteries are coming down, the costs of uh, producing these cars are coming down. The reliability is going up. You still have charge time issues and range issues, but the consumer now is getting more choice. And maybe the consumer doesn't want their entire fleet to be electrified, but certainly there's enough choices out there where they can have part of their fleet electrified. And I think that's, as you get more choice, I think it uh, becomes a more attractive option. On the mobility as a service, I think the journey is still ongoing there. I mean, there's companies that are certainly public, Uber and Lyft, um, not clear they've been able to make the economics work yet, uh, but it's evolving. And then you have autonomous where even though there's been a pile of dough put into this stuff, I still think there's a lot more money that's going to need to go into it to make this work. Steve, this is a great time to uh, step back and, and mention that for our, our listeners who don't know, uh, you served in a number of positions at General Motors, including uh, vice chairman and uh, you arrived there in, in 2009, which strikes me as sort of the depth of the Great Recession. Uh, I'm curious about what the landscape was like when you got there. And then it also seems to speak to, to uh, right about the time General Motors was designing the Chevy Volt and OnStar had been around for a while at that point, but kind of hitting a stride that you, that you mentioned. Uh, so I'm kind of curious how your time there informs your your views on those uh, on those technologies today? So just by background, I was 20 years of the auto analyst working on Wall Street uh, early on. Uh, I went into, I did a small stint inside GM and then came back and then did a, spent some time in private equity, uh, which led to a bigger stint. And, and I sort of backed into it in 09 
I ended up as an advisor to the auto workers union during the bankruptcy. Um, and when you know, the head of the auto, I had a relationship with the auto workers from my analyst days. And he called me up in October of o, October of 08, said, I need your help. I said, what's that? He says, GM and Chrysler want to merge. They've been stunning it for months. They want us to endorse the merger and agree to these five changes in the contract. And oh, by the way, they gave us five days to think about it. He says, will you come in as an advisor to us? Won't take a lot of your time. We'll pay you. I said, you don't need to pay me. We'll call it a favor between friends. Go under the tent, quickly realize it wasn't about GM uh, and Chrysler merging. It's about GMs running out of cash. And things got infinitely more complicated as we move forward, as we move into the bankruptcy. I told people I had a great seat at a bad movie. Um, GM goes bankrupt. Uh, GM gives up, 50, the union gives up 15 to 20 billion in wages and benefits. They get 10% of the company in the retiree healthcare trust. They get the right to nominate one person to the board of directors. Ron Gettelfinger, the head of the union at the time, called me up in April of 09. He says, I need to put someone on the GM board. I don't want it to be a union guy, and I don't want it to be a retired union guy. But the healthcare workers of half a million people are dependent upon the performance of the stock. He says, will you do it? And I was flattered. I joked the GM board coming out of bankruptcy, even when it's made up of a bunch of wildly successful business people and me. Okay, and move forward. Um, Ed Whitaker took over as he was chairman, took over as acting CEO. He asked and I offered, I said, I'll support you full time as long as you need me. Went under the tent, started, that's when I first started to go in, did a corporate strategy role, business development. Then uh, Ed announces he's staying. Nine months later, 10 months later, the board zeroes in on Ackerson to replace Ed. Uh, and, I, you know, and I supported Ackerson for the next four years or so. So you're talking about going in in a situation that was highly unstable. You had an unstable economic environment, you had an unstable corporate environment. So once the first priority was to stabilize the organization, and the second priority was, how can we get the organization to ask the question of, can you do these things faster? And how do you do these things faster? And the vault was already on the drawing board, the vault with a V was already on the drawing board. And that was already moving to production. And that was just enabling it to move into production. And and that was uh, a big win for the company because it showed the art of what's possible here. The bolt came a number of years later, uh, and that was uh, also on the drawing board. There was a partnership with LG around, developed around it. Um, and I think that was proof that, uh, hey, these guys can put out a credible uh, middle market, you know, mid-price mid car, electric car uh, for the masses. And I don't know if it was the commercial success, but certainly technically, we knew Tesla was coming out with a uh, mid-price sedan that was going to go over 200 miles in range. And the, the challenge to the GM organization was to get this thing north of 200 miles in range. They accepted the challenge. Uh, I think technically it was a big success for them. And I think it gives people confidence going forward that these guys could put out uh, a very powerful electric vehicle or a group of electric vehicles going forward. This isn't just we're brand new to the party and starting over. This isn't just I'm going to take my existing uh, Golf or uh, whatever car and just throw a EV powertrain in it. This was a ground up electric vehicle and it proved they could do it. On the connected front, they've been an on-star for years, okay, uh, leader in embedded connectivity. The challenge was it was OnStar at the time was a 2G connection, a 2G pipe. 
and 2G was going the way of the dodo bird. So the question was migrating that to 4G and how fast can you migrate it to 4G? And I think the organization, again, took that challenge. And the choice there was to be first and not entirely know what to do with it or be last. And I think the organization took the challenge that uh, they want to be first. And they were first with the Volt. They were first with the Bolt. And now they're first with uh, embedded connectivity. And um, I think it was all a big success. It's really interesting to me. I would agree with it. I think that uh, those those years of, uh, you know, roughly a decade ago to now kind of laid the the groundwork for the product success that we're, we're now seeing, be that the the uh, EV or or with connectivity. And it strikes me as interesting that OnStar has been around now for, for so long, yet we're, you know, to your earlier point about all these prognostic services or other services that are, are kind of just around the corner in terms of uh, being enabled by that connectivity is here we are decades later and it, it seems to be on the verge of coming to fruition. And I think these guys, listen, I'm not close to it anymore, but the outside looking in, these guys have a lot of confidence now. They have a lot of confidence. They're making a lot of money. Their margins are good. They're putting great product on the road. I think the organization's got a lot of confidence. They're not afraid to push the envelope in places. So uh, more power to them. And, it, you know, it speaks to the current leadership. Uh, so you saw the developments uh, of the Vault with the V. The, you saw the plug-in hybrid. You saw the EV. How did that kind of set the stage for you to to embark on something like uh, hydrogen fuel cell powered vehicles? And uh, you know, what do you take from your earlier experiences that informed how you kind of vetted uh, Nicola? Right. So we spent. Uh, GM had a big hydrogen business actually. Uh, predates me being there. Uh, and there was some question of how do you bring this business forward? We're coming out of bankruptcy. Can you afford to take something like this forward? So what dropped into my lap in, uh, in the business development corporate strategy area was, can you partner this with somebody? So we had to go around the world, frankly, and explore what everybody else was doing with hydrogen and whether opportunities to partner with others to share the risk, because this wasn't coming immediately. There were questions around chicken and egg, like why would you buy a hydrogen car if you don't have anywhere to fill it, et cetera. Is it only a fleet model, what have you? And in the course of that diligence, uh, which also frankly was renewed when we started the diligence, this situation is uh, the feeling was if you wanted to have a small car or a small you know, a truck to haul potato chips around town, you know, things that take up a lot of space, but not a lot of weight. Electric is fine. But if you want to haul cases of beer long distance, you're going to need something more than that. And hydrogen was an optimal uh, solution for that type of vehicle. And that's what led to this. Then, you know, that's sort of what led to the uh, piqued our interest in the cola. And um, that's what we, that's sort of how we, how we viewed it. Can you elaborate on that that infrastructure piece? Uh, you do need those filling stations, and uh, is right. this well suited to a company developing those on their own, or or does government participate in that uh, or incentivize it? How how exactly do we create this network of, of filling stations? So the public documents on the cola will tell you they are going to develop stations are a big piece of their. Uh, offering, okay, and providing fuel is a big piece of their offering, let's put it that way, to making sure taking that risk off the table from the customers. Um, and I think uh, what you have is the Koreans have uh, are 
pushing hydrogen. The Japanese are pushing hydrogen. But a lot of people are pushing both, okay? You've seen Daimler and Volvo get together and say, we're going to partner on hydrogen. So again, similar to electrification, the offerings are going to start to increase and the, and the infrastructure is going to inc- increase in parallel. And whether that's existing groups partnering or new groups developing their own, uh, time will tell here. The other thing you have going on is the renewable energy is increasing. Uh, renewable electricity is increasing, and that could be uh, creates a, an even cleaner source of hydrogen, uh, the, the ability to develop hydrogen. So those things coming together could make this the really the opportune time for hydrogen to uh, be an alternative, particularly for long-haul type stuff. Uh, you mentioned how Nicola's kind of taking that aspect on, and I think one of the underappreciated uh, aspects of, of how their business will run is, is there's this bundling of service and maintenance, uh, which I, I think, you know, in ways, just like you mentioned, you know, you're kind of getting the, the value of connected cars and, you know, there's, there's value, value to be captured from offering services from that. Um, I kind of suspect that this bundling of, of maintenance and service kind of also would help a, uh, an OEM, capture more value beyond just selling the vehicle and you kind of have this existing service. Uh, can, can you talk about that and what, what's appealing about so, that? So when I was a GM, you know, or any OEM for that matter, it's not just when I was there, it's any OEM, they sell a car for $40,000. That car will generate, you know, call it another 200, 250 over its life cycle. Okay, it'll be sold used a couple times, it'll be financed, it'll be insured, it'll need fuel, it'll be maintenance and repair. And that downstream revenue is more profitable and less cyclical than the selling the car. And in stock market terms, that downstream revenue has a higher margin than this than the existing car. I mean, a higher multiple than the existing car. So the more you can tap that stuff uh, and gather more of that under your uh, umbrella, you know, we create this customer, the OEMs create this custom, this vehicle, they launch it, that vehicle generates a lot of revenue, but they don't frankly get the bulk of that revenue that they, that they launch. So I think all companies are looking for ways to sort of capture that. So some of them are the ways you described as the cars become more connected. Um, it gives you more insight into what's going on in the car, what's going on with the consumer and your ability to keep that consumer in the family. So speak for more of their uh, your products and services, the better. Would you imagine that? Makes that sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. Um, you know, and we see some automakers, um, you know, talking about offering their own insurance and that would seem to kind of be one more aspect of, of that idea of capturing more of that long-term, uh, value stream. Mm-hmm. Certainly think- Tesla captures a lot of that. Yes. That's, uh, that's who I was thinking of right there. Um, mm-hmm. is, is that, uh, is that well suited for passenger cars? Is it, is it better suited for a fleet uh, that kind of requires those, those services, uh, you know, on a more frequent basis? I think it could be suited, well, uh, suited for either side. It's just, um, do you have the capability to do it and which pieces, uh, which pieces are you going to do? Car companies are getting into certified use. They're into finance. They've explored insurance. Okay. You'll be able to predict failure now. So do you get more of that under your umbrella, largely through your dealers, but it could be, um, 
your service parts organization. So there's things, there's ways you could do that. Uh, and I think technology is an enabler of that. Do we, uh, you know, there's obviously laws that, uh, you know, help dealerships claim that that service aspect of the business. I'm trying to think of how, how that relationship between dealers and automakers needs to evolve uh, technically, legally, et cetera, to, to kind of enable that uh, and, and decisions to be made on who exactly gets to capture that revenue. Well, I think it will continue. It has evolved. It'll continue to evolve. Some people are bypassing dealers entirely, um, but you still need somewhere to service your cars. You still need somewhere to show your cars uh, to the extent they get serviced in a dealership. I would argue the OEMs get profit from that uh, more so than if it gets serviced somewhere else. Um, so this is about sharing profitability with your distribution network. And I'm, frankly, it's about allocating capital. And if you want to own your own distribution network, that's fine. But there's capital that's required to support that. Um, so it's, uh, frankly, there's legal decisions that need to be made, obviously, but there's also business decisions that need to be made. Steve, let's take this uh, full circle. Uh, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you still see a lot of runway, essentially, in this transportation technology area. Uh, does the current kind of ongoing COVID pandemic, does that change how you are looking at mobility companies over the short term, over the long term? Does it, does it dampen any enthusiasm? Um, frankly, in some ways, it increases it. Um, it's harder to diligent situations. So don't get me wrong. It's harder to make deals happen. Um, you know, deals are happening. So I guess it's not that hard. Um, but from my perspective, to do the level of diligence we like to do in situations, it's a little harder because you can't travel as much. Um, on the other hand, uh, I think people want to drive. I think people want to drive cars. I have friends who are fairly large car dealers in March and April, they couldn't sell a car, they couldn't find a customer, and now they're short of cars. I think people in the near term don't want to fly as much, uh, but they still want to get out and go away. And driving is the best place to do it. And if you can drive with an EV, it's even cleaner. Um, so I think, frankly, uh, frankly, I think you can go from, I'm not an analyst anymore, but I think you could go from one of the weakest auto production quarters around to frankly one of the strongest as they rebuild inventory and what have you. Uh, but going forward, I think uh, people's, you know, people, you know, everyone thought the love affair with the car was going away. I think this whole COVID thing may increase it again. All one right. guy's opinion. It's a, it's a good opinion or it's certainly uh, the one that comes from years of experience in the auto industry. Um, final question for you. Uh, you have obviously done, as we've talked about, uh, you know, you've already merged one spec. Uh, what is your timetable for potentially uh, doing another? Uh, we, you, you always ask me the toughest ones at the end, Pete. Um, <laughs> we mull it around. There's no set timetable yet. Obviously, we had a good experience with this one. So we continue to think about it. Uh, and we'll let you know when there's something to say. How about that? That sounds great. Uh, Steve, any, any other final thoughts today? Nope. Just great to be with you guys. Well, likewise, it's uh, great having you on, and uh, we look forward to hearing more in the future. Great. Thank you. Take care, Pete. So long, everybody.
Thanks for that great conversation with Steve, Pete. Uh, really interested in hearing all that he had to say. You know, it's kind of funny. I honestly hadn't even really heard of a SPAC until uh, your conversation with Steve. And then just in the last week, I've heard it now multiple times. I don't know if it was AVS or I think it might have been a conversation with um, someone relatively new in the LIDAR space. But, you know, it's it's funny how these these things are, are popping up all over the place now and, and was my first exposure, but certainly won't be the last, it seems. Yeah, you know, I think you're right. Uh, it's kind of funny. Like on one hand, SPACs have been around for, for decades. It's not something new. Um, but on the other hand... Uh, based on the success of the Vecto IQ uh, Nikola SPAC, uh, suddenly we see companies like Velodyne, like Fisker, and others in the transportation realm saying that this uh, this is the path to the market, to public markets that they want to explore. So uh, we certainly seem like we're at the the outset of a trend, and uh, it's great to talk to Steve today uh, as the guy who is setting that trend. But that's, that's probably about it for today. We will be back next week with the next uh, episode of Shift. Thank you to our producer, Eric Jones. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, look forward to you joining us next time. Bye.